0: open my eyes that i may see glimpses of truth thou hast for me open my
1: Over the next hour, you will be a witness and companion to our guest's spiritual path and sacred testimony. Welcome to Song of the Soul. Today for Song of the Soul, we're headed out to Pittsburgh, PA, for a bedside interview with a woman sometimes known as the Union Maid, Ann Feeney. Anne grew up Catholic, but her adult faith shines through her labor, peace, justice, and other activism. This is a bedside interview because Ann Feeney is currently under treatment for lung cancer, so I especially appreciate the time she's given me and us to talk with us today. And welcome to Song of the Soul.
2: Well, it's just one of those miracles of radio, isn't it? We're far apart, but we're having this lovely
1: conversation. Tell me about the luxurious setting you're in at the moment.
2: Oh dear, my least favorite setting. I'm in a hospital. It's nothing I'm used to. I must say, they keep asking me who my primary care physician is, and the only doctor I've ever had is my parents' primary care physician. I've never really been sick. But I want Shadyside Hospital in Pennsylvania, in Pittsburgh.
1: And how long you been there? you getting out, I think, tomorrow maybe?
2: Oh, I don't know. I don't think they have immediate plans to release me.
1: I'm sorry to hear that. I understand it's cancer. You've been through chemotherapy, radiation therapy, and given all the work that your body's been doing, I'm really thankful that you could make this time to share with our audience. We're here today for Song of the Soul, and very shortly I'll have you back for Spirit in Action. How long have you been doing music?
2: Well, music's always been a part of my life, a big part of my life. Long before I knew what music was, my parents taught me how much is that doggy in the window and stood me up on the coffee table to sing it when I was two years old. My family's gatherings always involved lots of singing, riding along in the car with my parents to visit my grandmother. They would sing all the way there and back. I don't want to make it sound too Aussie and Harriet. We just loved to sing. We loved harmonies. And my dad was a great harmonizer, and I picked it up very quickly as well. I guess I was in law school in 1975 when I was invited to join a bluegrass band. Up until that, all of my work had been solo and mostly at demonstrations and rallies and so forth. I sang a lot of anti-war rallies and some very early labor stuff to integrate the building trades in Pittsburgh. My professional career, I suppose you could say, started in 1975 when I joined the Bluegrass Band, but now that I'm actually working as a full-time professional musician, I can say the quality of work and the uh, the professional booking schedule and so on didn't really evolve fully until I started working with Chris Chandler in 2001.
1: Do you prefer being a musician to having been a lawyer for 12 years or so?
2: Oh my God, Yes. <laughs> If you ask any lawyer why I uh, quit practicing law and tell them because she could, every lawyer knows what that means. They'd all do something else if they could, I think. An unusual lawyer who's gratified in the practice of law these days, especially social justice lawyers. It's just been such a head-banging exercise. That being said, that's exactly what my son has chosen to do with his life. He's a human rights lawyer practicing law in Quito, Ecuador right now. But I made the switch from law to music in 1989, right after I won the uh, Kerrville New Folk Competition.
1: Uh, That's a big step for a lot of people. Kerrville is really major. I think that most of the people who do music there are considered folkish, right?
2: Well, certainly that was true when I won. There's been a tremendous influence of Nashville songwriting and country music in the intervening years.
1: Well, let's get familiar with some of your music for our audience here today. How would you like to start out your song of the soul?
2: I thought we'd start out with the very first song I ever wrote. In 1987, I was recording a cassette called If I Can't Dance, It's Not My Revolution. And I had just seen the wonderful Newgrass Revival perform in Pittsburgh. They had done a, a bluegrass performance of One Love, you know, the Bob Marley tune. And I thought, oh, God, every recording should have a reggae tune on it. I started listening to all the reggae music I could find, and I could not find a song that wasn't so loaded with religious references that did not ring true for me. So I decided if there was going to be a reggae song on my album, I'd have to write it. And so I sat down and wrote Take Them Down, and that's what we're listening to now.
3: Where did all these misses come from? Them in my name. We built them up, let's take them down now. Today
0: we stop this deadly game. Take them down, we demand.
1: And Feeney's song, take them down. Obviously, reggae style, you started out with reggae, and yet, you know, folk is, I think, maybe your meat and potatoes, uh, assuming you're not a vegetarian.
2: Well, I don't think any reggae band would confuse my performances, assuming I'm a reggae band. <laughs>
1: I do notice that weaving in and out a lot of your tunes, uh, you must like it a fair amount, the music of it at least.
2: The rhythm is very captivating, I think, and it also gives you a great medium if you've got a lyric intensive song because reggae is very forgiving of what Tom Leary used to call it, don't matter if you put a couple extra syllables into a line.
1: In that song, you mention a lot of places, uh, Seabrook, Rocky Flats, Diablo Canyon, Three Mile Island, all those places. I'm kind of assuming that over your 300 days a year touring, you've probably been to all those places for rallies or protests or something.
2: Well, I've got to say, by the time I started doing my serious touring, most of those places had either been uh, decommissioned or the local resistance groups had given up their resistance. So I did plenty of work at Three Mile Island. That was in my virtual backyard. And I've been out to the Nevada test site.
1: So let me guess, you're really just not much of a fan of nuclear power or weapons, right?
2: Well, it's very depressing to me that we are back to nuclear power as an option, that as fossil fuels become so obviously dangerous and detrimental to us that there's now talk once again of trying to revive nuclear, you would think eventually they would get to the idea that we need to find some kind of renewable resource that isn't unsustainable.
1: Again, you're sitting there in the hospital. I assume they have stupid stuff on television there that you don't want to watch. Do you have your own music or somebody else's music, maybe Pete Seeger or someone piped in?
2: The nurses come in here fairly regularly and say, Is your television broken? I haven't had it on since I got here. I have my iPod with me. It's loaded up with all of my friends' music. In fact, the song we're going to listen to right now was written by one of my favorite writers, John Fromer. John working with his pal Bernard Gilbert, and the song is called My Feet Are Tired. I do so much college work, and it becomes increasingly frustrating to me to find so many college kids like marbles in a chute. We talked about being like that when we were undergraduates, but there actually still was a liberal arts academy when I was an undergraduate. These days, college is kind of a glorified trade school, except that it costs nine times more, and most kids are leaving with a debt that is a mortgage and nowhere to live. The worst part about it is how badly they're being taught. I did a class for elementary educators in northern Florida, and those people are teaching school this fall for the first time, and their concentration was history and social studies. I thought I would be on safe ground by saying, who knows who Rosa Parks was, and I was. Every hand went up, and I said, what did she do? And one of them said she wouldn't give up her seat on the bus. That's right. So then what happened? I'd already lost about half the room, but one of them said, the Civil Rights Movement started. I said, oh, I I think the Civil Rights Movement started well before that. What else happened? Somebody finally said, oh, I think she got arrested. And I said, that's right. So then what happened? And as far as most of them were concerned, Rosa Parks could still be in jail. They had no idea what had happened to her after she refused to give up her seat on the bus. When I started explaining to them that Rosa Parks had been working with the NAACP and was kind of, not randomly, but arbitrarily selected out of several possible people to be the one who had refused to give up her seat, well, and then I said, said, how how many people have heard about the Montgomery bus boycott? Now, there were a couple African-American youngsters in the room who I'm sure had heard about it and were just too shy to say so, but not one hand went up, and they didn't know what a boycott was, And they certainly had no idea when I told them that thousands of people walked everywhere for as long as it took to win the right to the matter of principle, to be able to sit on the bus wherever they chose. One of the students said, that can't be true. If that were true, I would have heard it. But I know every single one of those young elementary teachers is in the classroom now, and except for my visit to school, which turned out to be very controversial for them and unsettling. Except for my visit, they knew nothing about Rose Parks. And, of course, this song is about the courage of the thousands and thousands of people who walked everywhere for over a year to win the right to sit where they wanted on the bus.
3: My feet are tired. My feet are tired. Oh, my feet are tired. But my soul is rested. My feet are tired, my feet are tired, my feet are tired, but my soul is rested. 1955, that's a lifetime ago, remember I like Ike, remember Jim Crow, Montgomery, Alabama, My feet are tired My feet are tired But my soul is rested My feet are tired to work in the morning light thousands walking home from their jobs at night the days turned to weeks the weeks turned to months it was more than a year before it was one my feet are tired my feet are tired my feet are tired but my soul is rested My feet are tired, my feet are tired, but my soul is rested Working back then, you would hear people say I only want my kids to see a better day I thought it over and I've changed my mind But my soul is rested
1: That was My Feet Are Tired, performed here by Anne Feeney, originally by John Fromer. Did I get that right?
2: That's right, and Bernard Gilbert. And the reason this song resonates so strongly with me is because this song really teaches that struggle requires commitment and takes time. I think we live in such an instant age. People assume if they go out to a rally and turn out two million people that if the war doesn't stop, that's finished now, let's move on to the next thing. That's not the way big struggles are won. and if we don't learn our history, we will certainly be condemned to repeat it again and again.
1: Part of that, in my opinion, is that our society is more and more immediate gratification, short attention span. We train people to have a 15-second attention span kind of at the longest, so
2: Part of the way we do that is by teaching a curriculum that says Rosa Parks woke up one morning and decided to end segregation and so she didn't give up her seat on the bus, and that took care of that.
1: Yeah, and how many people know about all the training she went through, the training camp that she went through that prepared her for this. I I had grown up thinking that it was a spontaneous decision. I'm just tired this day. Interestingly enough, the quote that I think this song is based on is not by Rosa, but I think it's by Mother Pollard. Did you know that?
2: I did not know that.
1: Yeah, her original quote was something to the effect of, my feet is weary, but my soul is rested. So there were so many who participated in that Montgomery bus boycott, including, of course, Martin Luther King Jr. and Abernathy was in it, so on. So many people got their start there. Wonderful that it comes from just a small town that the dominoes can fall and such major changes take place. It's a story of hope and inspiration for a lot of us. Where did you get your start politically? Was this, I mean, some people, you know, obviously Martin Luther King, his was from a religious space. He was, I believe, American Baptist. And, you know, that caused him to work hard for justice. Where did you get your original inspirations, family or ancestors or just your life experience?
2: Well, I was hardly a red diaper baby. My father was the first person in our family to graduate from college, and he had a job as a professional. He was employed as a chemist. But his dad was an organizer for the United Mine Workers of America and a real firebrand hellraiser and one of the lead organizers of the 1919 steel strike in Pittsburgh. I have a picture of my grandfather and Mother Jones getting ready to speak just before a rally. So it runs in my blood, but growing up in the 50s and going to a Catholic school and living in a very mean-spirited little working-class neighborhood, my dad did not regale me with too many tales about Mother Jones. Still, he couldn't help but say things that got on his nerves. I remember once I brought home an application to enter an American Legion contest. If you wrote a patriotic essay, you could win a $50 savings bond, which I thought was very exciting. And he said, you're not entering any American Legion contest. Those people are faux patriots. They're just wannabe patriots. The real patriots are in the veterans of foreign wars. But as I looked more into the history of the American Legion, I began to understand the American Legion was actually kind of a front group of the Chamber of Commerce and was used to identify union organizers and bust unions. In fact, they were quite a fascist organization. They invited Benito Mussolini to come and keynote one of their conventions. But my father couldn't help slipping every once in a while and imparting some of the sentiments he had acquired from his dad. It was actually, I think, Santa Claus that made a socialist out of me. I was watching television one night, and they were talking about a toy drive. Bring your toys to some place so that poor children would be able to have Christmas. I said something that just seemed self-evident. Well, that's stupid. Why would you take toys for poor kids? Santa Claus will bring them toys. And when my father began to explain as well as he could that Santa Claus didn't bring toys to poor kids, just to rich kids. I was so angry. I thought, that's insane. Rich kids already have all the toys they want. I would say I have to thank Santa for making me into a socialist.
1: That's a great inspiration for socialism. <laughs> Well, give us some more of your wonderful music. I think you've got eight CDs out there, plus the cassettes, which I don't know if anybody can get a hold of these days. Uh, what other kind of music you want to share with us?
2: Because this is Song of the Soul, and because I'm not really grounded in a religious tradition at this point, I started thinking about the songs that I had written to see which one's embodied spirit I guess when somebody's words mean so much to me that I want to be able to memorize them by setting them to music, that's got to have some sort of, be part of my spiritual path. I think that Eugene Debs is one of the great underappreciated Americans and someone that we should all know more about. I played at Eugene Debs' dinner annually in Terre Haute, Indiana, his hometown. Before the Debs' dinner begins every year, people stand up and hold hands and say, while there is a lower class i am in it while there is a criminal element i am of it while there is a soul in prison i am not free i figure any time people have to recite something like that it'd be much better if they could sing it so i commenced to setting that and some other very powerful words of jean debs to music we're going to listen to for jean debs
3: jean debs said to hell with war to hell with all who crave it When masters rule the world no more We'll need no wars to save it Why the ones who own the tools Hoard the wealth, make the rules The planet suffers for the powerful few Tengo...
1: For Gene Debs by Anne Feeney. Eugene Debs, obviously, is a great labor organizer. You know, one of the things that struck me, you, you said, Ann, that you're not particularly grounded in religious tradition. The words that he has there strike me as very directly connected from the Bible, the book of Matthew, chapter 27. That's uh, one of the places where, you know, when you visited those in prison, that, that you did to me, that kind of stuff. He's saying it again, and I think extending it just a little bit, but do you have any idea if he was at all religious?
2: He was not. Actually, the line that you're saying sounds like Matthew is the one I made up to make it into a four-line set of couplets instead of three lines. So I guess that's my Catholic upbringing and bagling its way into my songwriting.
1: At what point did you leave it, or did you search elsewhere, or did you? where do you find your community? Uh, Music World, of course, is a great place to find community
2: it's funny you should mention that because now as quite a few people are beginning to uh, explain to me I may be near the end of my days, my cousin is a Roman Catholic priest is over here on a fairly regular basis, and he's a very dear friend, and I've, you know, we've been very close all of our lives. But when he comes over to me and wants to give me his blessing and stuff, I just have such a hard time. And I know it's going to break his heart, but I'm making arrangements to be buried with Mother Jones out in Mount Olive, Illinois, and not in a Catholic cemetery, and I'm not going to have a Catholic funeral.
1: Was this an issue with your parents directly, too?
2: Well, in 1977, I married a nice Jewish lawyer, and we decided to raise our kids with no religious training It was a problem for my parents that my kids weren't baptized. In fact, I'll bet you dollars to donuts at some point. My dad whirled the kids away somewhere and baptized them himself just to make sure they didn't have to languish in limbo.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's certainly not part of my beliefs. Of course, as a Quaker, I don't have beliefs in the way that other religions generally do.
2: I wanted to tell you my fun run-in with uh, Quakers. When I was 16, I was in charge of coming up with the theme for a dance at my all-girls Catholic high school. I decided it would be fun to have a psychedelic dance. I didn't even know what psychedelic meant, but they were saying psychedelic on Laugh-In every week, and I knew it meant paisley and eye-popping patterns and so forth that there was a hippie neighborhood in Pittsburgh, and I decided to go over there to look for decorations for the party, and I, I wasn't allowed to go there. But my girlfriend and I made it over to Shadyside, and we were rooting around through this hippie store, and we found bindis, so all of us were going to wear bindis to the dance, you know, the little reflective discs for our foreheads. And I was finding other kinds of psychedelic stuff, but we were uh, laughing and talking so much, and this fellow came over to us and said, So what are you doing, girls? So I explained that I'm the chair of the dance committee and we're having a psychedelic dance, and this is 1966. So this fellow says to us, well, gee, would it fit in with your psychedelic theme if we had some Quaker hippies there doing draft counseling? And I said, yeah, that would be fabulous. That would be wonderful. And I checked with the nuns, and they were fine with it. So we actually had draft counseling at one of our dances when I was in high school, courtesy of Quakers from the American Friends Service Committee.
1: You really are a wild radical from the start. <laughs> it's been in the bones. Well, give us some more of your music. And I think uh, one of the things that I've heard about you is that along the way you got called the uh, kind of the union maid. You were so pro-union. You were a union representative for a while, right?
2: I was the only woman ever elected president of the Pittsburgh Musicians Union in its 100-plus year history. In fact, I decided there was no way that we could do songs of the soul without including a traditional labor song. Songs like Solidarity Forever and Which Side Are You On? I think every time you sing them, they come with not just their own power, but the power of generation after generation, of people singing it together when they're in struggle. This song that we're going to listen to is probably one of the oldest labor songs, The Internationale by Pierre de Gator and Eugene Patier. This is written in Paris originally and in French, and it's the only song I know of that is translated into pretty much every language in the world. In the traveling I've done, I have found very few places around the world can I walk into a room and start singing this and not find someone who knows how to sing it in their own language.
4: Arise, oh, ye prisoners of starvation
3: Arise, oh, ye wretched of the earth for justice, thunder's condemnation Of a other worlds in birth No more traditions it's change Shall thus us arise, ye slaves No more th- in thrall. The earth shall rise on new foundations We have been taught, we, we shall be taught Tis the, the, the fire
0: The international working class shall free the human race. We
3: want no condescending saviors to rule us from their judgment hall. We workers ask not for their favors, let us consult for all. the scorch's booty to free the spirit from itself we must ourselves decide our duty we must decide and do it well Tis the fire
1: That was the Internacional, performed here by Ann Feeney, who's with us here today for Song of the Soul. This is a Northern Spirit Radio production, and I'm your host, Mark Helpsmeet. Our website is northernspiritradio.org. And you can go there, find all our programs the past five years, and link to our guests like to Ann Feeney, who's with us today from her hospital room. She's been under treatment for lung cancer So let's keep right on going so we can get in as much of her music as possible. What's up next, Anne, for your Song of the Soul?
2: Well, this is a fun song that I wanted to share with you. This is from my friend Kristen Lems in Chicago. It's one of those songs that I have been singing for 30 years, 35 years, without having to change it much. And it's also one of those songs that people assume I have written in the last 24 hours because it somehow manages to stay timely. But since this was Song of the Soul, I figured a song that I've been performing that long called Theocracy definitely belonged in our playlist.
1: I've never heard Kristen Lems perform. You said she's from the Chicago area?
2: Yes, Kristen's lived in Chicago most of her life. And in the late 70s and early 80s, she was touring extensively. She was a great influence on me. She was real active in the women's movement. And I saw her do a concert in Pittsburgh and she had her baby with her on the stage. When the baby would fuss, she would nurse the baby in the middle of the concert, which was very unnerving to a lot of people. And I just thought was totally awesome.
1: That certainly sounds like someone who would not be comfortable with the rule of the theocracy. The song is Days of the Theocracy. It's by Kristen Lems, performed here by Anne Feeney.
3: First they ban abortion, birth control is next. Then comes sex when you're not married, finally out goes sex. Put the prayers back in the schools, install parochial aid. Allow for corporal punishment, and then you've got it made. We're going back, back to the good old days when men were really men and women knew their place. We're going back, back a couple of centuries and welcome back the days of the theocracy. If a wife is not content, she must adjust, of course. If he's forced to beat her, it's all for her own good. She must know what her limits are, as every woman should. We're going back, back to the good old days, when men were really men, and women knew their place. We're going back, back a couple of centuries, and welcome back the days of the the
5: could be more fulfilling than a child wanted or not. A woman's work is housework, God wanted it that way. A salary degrades us cause we shouldn't work for pay. We're going back, back to the good old days when men were manly men and women knew their place. We're going back,
3: back a couple of centuries and welcome back the days of the theocracy. They teach us women's lot. Is love, honor, and obey Though their crusty notions Seem like jokes to us today They are sitting in our capitals And the White House And the Supreme Court They'll be voting on our lives
5: If we don't stop them now Our freedom will not long survive No going back, back To those lousy days when men were really masters and women were their slaves. Let's move ahead, ahead for future centuries and build a world that's based on true democracy
3: and build a world that's based on true equality.
1: That's Anne Feeney, Days of the Theocracy, song written by Kristen Lems. And it certainly is something a lot of us can get behind. Are you worried that uh, the recent election is going to mean that there's a change in the direction of the theocracy?
2: When I learn a song, I am interested not just in its immediate value, but whether or not it's talking about something that's going to stay timely indefinitely. And that song was actually written during the height of the Reagan administration, when Kristen thought things couldn't get any worse. Look at how many times it's had a comeback in the, in the intervening years. So regardless of what's going on in politics, I think that song will remain timely and useful.
1: Obviously, I'm a religious and spiritual person, so of course I see this thing from many directions. Uh, Martin Luther King and Gandhi are two of the very inspirational people that I know of who, if they were in charge of the theocracy, if they were leaders in the theocracy, it might feel a little safer because I don't think they'd be doctrinaire in how they'd run it. But obviously there's other people and, you know, we've seen the Crusades and the Inquisition and everything over the years where the theocracy can pretty much be hell on earth.
2: Well, here's another lesson from my father that I acquired as a young woman. They put under God into the Pledge of Allegiance when I was a young girl. And I was horrified that he was against that because he had me in a Catholic school. We went to church every Sunday, no matter what. And I couldn't imagine why he didn't want under God in the Pledge of Allegiance. And he said, the God they're talking about is a different God than my God. He knew that, they were, that a lot of the people who would put under God into the Pledge of Allegiance were staunchly anti-Catholic. So once you allow any kind of religion into the functioning of the state, I think you're treading in very dangerous
1: waters. Certainly is a danger there. But one of the great dangers we're going to run right now is listening to another of your wonderful songs. <laughs> Which one would you like us to listen to?
2: The song I want to play for you now, I wrote for a play that my friend Jerry Starr wrote about the Sago Mine Disaster. And the Sago Mine Disaster, if you've lost track of it in your mind, was the particularly ghoulish one where they told the women who were waiting to learn the fate of their husbands that they had found them all alive except for one, when in fact it was the mirror opposite that was true. They had found them all dead except for one. Even though this error was discovered quite early by the company, they did not correct it for a while, and they allowed these women to go on, hallelujah, and praising the Lord on television that their husbands had all been found safely while they sat in a boardroom trying to figure out how to manage this public relations gap. The women of West Virginia are pretty much a religious group of folks. And to a person in the interviews, they were saying things on the order of, Coal mining is a very dirty, dangerous job, and you just never know when the Lord is going to call you home. The reason I love Jerry's play, Buried, the Story of the Sago Mine Disaster, is because it documents the real-life experience of these women who, I think, came into the Sago Mine Disaster believing that God had called their husbands home and, after investigation, realized that God had done nothing of the sort, that these miners were dispatched to their reward prematurely by corporate greed. So I decided these gals deserved a gospel song that would speak their truth. And that's what I attempted to do when writing You Will Answer.
3: Last night as I lay tossing and turning in my bed, I dreamed that I was in the presence of the Lord. With a dozen sago miners who had gone to their reward, God looked down on those miners and he said, who has sent my faithful servants here unbidden to my throne
0: He will answer on that judgment day
3: Who has left their grieving families heartbroken and alone He will answer on that judgment day Oh he will answer He
0: will answer on that
3: judgment day He will answer on that judgment day. He will answer, He will answer on that judgment day, He will answer on that judgment day. day. I have fashioned those who labor in my image, God did say, I did not call these miners home to me. Many years I had allotted them with friends and family, now the heavens weep to hear their orphans pray. You cannot serve God and mammon if it's mammon that you choose You will answer on that judgment day Now what good is all your wealth if your eternal soul you lose? You will answer on that judgment day Oh you will answer You will answer on that judgment
0: day You will answer on that judgment day
3: You will answer on that judgment day. You
0: will answer on that judgment
3: day. It is easier to get a camel through a needle's eye than a rich man into heaven, it's been told. Every time a human life's cut short by avarice for gold, there will be a day of judgment by and by. Now, You've garnered earthly riches and you come to heaven's door. You, you will answer, answer on that judgment day. To serve God you must renounce your wealth and share it with the poor. Or you this will answer, answer on that judgment day. Oh, you will answer. You will answer on that judgment day. You will
0: answer on that judgment
3: day. Yes, you will answer. You will answer on on that judgment judgment day. You
0: will answer answer on
3: that judgment day. Day. To serve Mm -hmm. God, you must renounce your wealth and share it with the poor, or you will
4: answer answer on on that
3: judgment
4: day.
1: You Will Answer by Ann Feeney. That's some strong language in there. And as you said, Anne, you wrote it from their point of view that would speak their truth. I assume you don't think much of the idea that, you know, God's going to punish people in the afterlife kind of thing?
2: No, I think I'm probably more of a what goes around comes around. I do think there's a long term karma slapback for people who behave like that.
1: Well, certainly there's plenty of evidence of greed and negligence involved in the Sago Mine disaster, or more recently, in the BP Gulf spill. In the Anne Feeney book of Rights and Wrongs, what kind of guidelines or moral laws do you turn to in order to figure out what's good, bad, or just completely hideous, and that needs to be addressed by a song to raise consciousness?
2: It's, been a, it's a lifelong challenge for thinking adults to find the place that sits right with their spirits. I've been challenged many times, and I do tend to take each case on a case-by-case basis and solve each dilemma as well I can. I guess that's all we can do.
1: We're getting down to the wire, Ann, and it would be a pity not to squeeze in one more song. Do you have something picked out that you can send us off with?
2: Well, like I said, we don't win them all, and I really wanted a song that would sustain me through the times of setback and loss, and these words of Dr. King have kept me going so many times. You know, this is actually a song where I put the introduction on the song, so I think I'll just thank you for inviting me to be on Songs of the Soul and let this song speak for itself to your audience.
1: We're going to close Ann Feeney's Song of the Soul with her song, How Long... Thank you, Anne, for taking the time with us here today. Especially, we wish you well in your recuperation and look forward to seeing you up, hale and hearty, on tour soon. How Long by Anne Feeney.
5: There are times I know when it's so hard just to put one foot in front of the other and keep breathing. Lord knows we've been through some trying times lately, and after enduring so many setbacks, we can begin to wonder if our lives, our work, mean anything. But still, I keep believing, because we can never know exactly where we stand in history. Think of the thousands of people who spent 10 or 20 years of their lives trying to get Nelson Mandela released from prison some of them died, perhaps brokenhearted, without learning the happy ending to that story. And so I say, hold on, hold on to hope with both hands. I'm going to share with you words from Dr. King that have given me the strength to carry on many times. And I hope that these words, inspired by sacred song and Unitarian philosophy, lift you up and give you the courage, the courage to keep on.
3: I hear you ask today how long will it take I hear you ask today oh how long I hear you ask I hear you ask today, how long will it take? I hear you ask today, how long? but it bends toward justice how long